Our scripture passage for today is a short one initially, and then I'm referring to a number of other passages in the midst of the message. And in preparation for that, I'd like also to mention that Jack and Sandy McCormick, whom some of you know, have mentioned to me because they knew that we were going into a sermon on the Ten, a message, a series on the Ten Commandments, that their church had had a number of uh, calligraphy Ten Commandments sheets available for the congregation, and these were made available by some other organization. And they sent me for the church a bunch of these, which we received yesterday, and they're on the back table. Raymond, would you go over there and, and take a hold of one of those things and hold it up? We have the Ten Commandments, and down at the bottom, a, a um, questionnaire thing that you can tear off so that you can just have the Ten Commandments part and frame it or put it wherever you want. So please take one for your family. Um, they really are beautiful, and it's also it's a little better than the one that I printed out several weeks ago and put in the bulletin, because this one's in color, black and red and gold. You can't beat it. So uh, please take a copy and, and use it as you see fit. <clears throat> I think <clears throat> the way in which the organization began this was arising out of the judge in, was it Mississippi or where was it, that has the Ten Commandments posted behind his chair and uh, they've been trying to sue him to, to have it removed. So this organization decided that rather than just have one judge have it, they'd try and see that everybody got it in as many places as they, as they could. So these things are going all over the place and um, take it as you see fit. Short passage today. I'd like to ask you to read it aloud with me. It's at the bottom of your bulletin. This, of course, is the first commandment, and it is in the New International Version. Let's read it aloud together. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word through your Holy Spirit, because there is power in your word, and we desire for that power to transform our hearts, our souls, our lives. We ask that you might meet each one of us individually here today because we humbly open our hearts to you for your powerful work in us. Keep us from rebellion at any point, Lord. Cause us to be submissive to you. And we ask this, Lord, and your blessing upon this time, I pray that my words would be in keeping with your word because your word alone is holy. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's a seduction of our age that causes us to think that of all the commandments, this one that forbids us to have any gods other than the Lord is the commandment which we are least in danger of breaking. Of all the commandments, you go through the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. All of these various and sundry commandments that come after this one, of all the commandments, perhaps this is the one which we are least likely to think that we have broken. However, if you participated in the Fireside Adult Sunday School class prior to its being called the Alpha Sunday School class, during the time when Neil was uh, teaching it and addressing the first two of the Ten Commandments, you may not be under this illusion because they looked at these first two commandments and their application <clears throat> today. We have a tendency to think that we are safe from having other gods. 
We have a tendency to think we're safe from worshiping other gods. Because we live in a culture that gives lip service to being Christians. After all, when's the last time that you saw Buddha sitting down in the town square? There's no Buddha down there. Our war monument, for instance, has a stanza of a hymn inscribed in granite for posterity. We consider ourselves in this culture a Christian culture. But as we study this command more fully, we will see where and how this commandment strikes home with us as individuals personally and as a culture. And how we have to deal with it in our own lives, our homes, our churches, and our community. Just yesterday, I ran into two Jehovah's Witnesses. And in sending them on their way, felt a tinge of sympathy and uneasiness. They're doing so in an abrupt fashion. Yet that is just one obvious religion cult of our community that would have us turn away from honoring the Lord God as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. So we must realize that Satan will do with us with regard to idolatry exactly what he did with Adam and Eve, specifically with Eve with regard to the the tree, the fruit of the tree that was forbidden, forbidden fruit in the, in the Garden of Eden. Satan said this in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so as Satan soft-pedaled God's instruction, every tree in the garden you can eat from, but this one. You must ignore this one. You must treat it as a pariah. You must not touch it. You must not envy it. You must not lust after it. You must not look at it. Have nothing to do with this tree. Satan soft-pedaled that message. Oh, did God really say this? Well, really what he means is thus and such. Satan would have us do the same thing with regard to idolatry and think in our hearts, well, this is really not something that affects us. It's not really something that applies to me in this day and age, in this culture, in my Christian family, my Christian community, my church, my world. We cannot treat this command or the injunction against idolatry lightly. We have to pay attention to it. And we have to seek its application to us here today in our lives. Now again, probably I'll mention this in most every one of the sermons. As we look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are not the basis for salvation. What we are seeing in the Ten Commandments is two things. First thing we're seeing in the Ten Commandments is that it is a schoolmaster to show us how we have sinned against God so that we might turn to Him. And the second thing is that we find in the Ten Commandments a basis for obedience because we love God through Jesus Christ. So what do we see from this first of the Ten Commandments? We see that He is to be our God. He is to be our God because He is the one and only God. 
In Luke 10, 27, Christ summarized this first portion of the Ten Commandments in this way. Love the Lord your God. We are to love Him. We are to cling close to Him. As it says in the, in the verses we read it, you shall have no other gods before me. And as I was reading that verse and looking at it, that have, it's a small, tiny word, but it jumped out at me. In a marriage ceremony, if you've seen them in movies or whatever, the, the olden days marriage liturgy sort of wording uses the words to have and to hold from this day forward. And to have a wife or a husband doesn't mean that there's that person sitting here, <laughs> just sort of a fixture in your home or a fixture in your car or a fixture in your life. It means I have this wife. I have her. She's there. It's great. In the same way, we need to recognize that we are to have the Lord as our God. He is to be our God. He is to be God with whom we are personally related and attached. Not something we take for granted. Not something that doesn't matter. But something that is intimately ours. Someone who is intimately related to us. Someone who we love with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind, as we are told in Scripture. It's, it's said to us in the negative. You must have no other gods, which by reverse means you must have me as your God. And so we see from this that we cannot embrace anyone or anything else. And as we're talking about gods, we have to realize that, that the way to describe it is not uh, a person, but, but the best way is just to say anyone or anything, because anything or person or whatever can become a God in our lives that takes the place of the Lord. <clears throat> what this does is it speaks to us of the importance of choice in following this commandment. Knowledge is insufficient. It's not, suffi it's not sufficient. It doesn't say, you shall know no other gods other than me, even though we recognize that scripturally no means an intimate relationship. It's not talking about head knowledge. It's talking about a relationship that is based upon our having, our taking to ourselves, just as we do in a marriage ceremony or a marriage covenant. It's a relationship which we have made by choice. And this choice is a must. Joshua put it this way, Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day. How do you have the Lord as your God and no other gods? Because you have said... He is my God. And so Joshua said, Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, my choice is this. We will serve the Lord. And so for us, as we consider this commandment, we have to realize it's not something that happens as our culture might express it, as Satan would have us believe automatically. As many people express it, well, I was born a Christian and, and he was born a Muslim and so, you know, what's the difference? No, you, you don't get born a Christian as you're born into this world as a human being. You get reborn as a Christian, but you do not get born as a Christian. It is a choice. It is a matter of the will. And God's part 
is the the part which causes our wills to do that. But nevertheless, unless that choice is made in our hearts, it never happens. It's not an automatic. <clears throat> what else do we see in this command? We see that we must not be distracted from him. No divided loyalties are allowed because purely and simply, there are no other gods. All kinds of gods are called gods, right? If we're speaking, for instance, of religions, but there are no other gods. And so what the Lord wants from us is this, single-minded devotion. Luke 27, 27, further on, let me read this whole, the Lord's whole answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. In other words, single-minded. He's not, only, not only is he to be the God that we love and that we know personally, because he has made himself known to us, but our whole being is to be given over to this pursuit. Those of you who have been involved in uh, graduate studies or other things along those lines, realize what it means to have very close to single-minded devotion. Because in order to pursue a goal like that or various and sundry other goals in life, whether they're business goals, education goals, relationship goals, or whatever, often takes a single-minded pursuit. You have to go after it. You have to focus every ounce of your attention on it in order to achieve what you are seeking to achieve. With God, He is not willing to take less than complete single-mindedness. And so the single-minded attention and devotion that we need to give to Him is degrees higher than any other devotion or pursuit that we have pursued in our lives. He doesn't ask for our intellect. And that's it. Leave it at that. If I have your intellect, I'll be satisfied. Do what you want with your muscles, your strength. Lift weights all you want. You can use them for yourselves. I want your intellect. No. He doesn't say, I want your muscles, your strength, your bodies. And you can spend your minds thinking on whatever you please. Because as we saw over the last several weeks, the Ten Commandments are integrated. Our God is a God of integration. He's a God who works with us in such a way that we have to relate to Him on all levels. We can't just relate to Him with our minds and think about Him and never do anything about it. (laughs) And so He says, I want your heart. I want your soul. I want your strength. I want your mind. And in essence, this is a formula which says exactly what I've been saying. The entire you. Now, there are many possible gods that we may serve. First thing that we have to to look at is is the fact that there are good gods that we can serve. There are many good things in this world that we can give our attention to and cause us to get distracted from single-minded devotion to the Lord. Example of this in Scripture is high places. Solomon made offerings on the high places during that time in his life when he was honoring the Lord. Many of the Israelites did. But God had said, people, listen, I want you to worship me in a specific place, and that is at the temple. 
during the time when the temple was in existence. <laughs> and so the high places, they were worshiping the Lord there. Many times they were worshiping false gods as well, but they were worshiping the Lord in these high places, and so it was very good. Very good, but, but not quite, right? Not quite. So it was a good God. And yet, as we look at it with regard to this commandment, it was a distraction from single-minded devotion. Created things. God has made a magnificent world. And yet we see in Scripture that God detests the way in which people have turned to worship the things that He created, rather than the Creator Himself. People, as He expresses in Scripture, worship the starry heavens. Magnificent. You might see more of this in a um, um, astronomy context our day than in a religious context in our culture. Nonetheless, the stars are a magnificent thing. The sun is a magnificent thing. And people have worshipped the sun. <coughs> the problem is not that these things are not good. The problem is they have taken the place of God. There are many of life's, life's priorities. Things that God has told us in Scripture that we are to devote our attention to. That we can put in the place of God. And as a result, cause them to be distractions from this devotion. <coughs> There are things that God has set up as relationships and aspects of life that we are to honor and to hold in high esteem. You can just go down the list. Marriage, family, children, work, education, homes, wealth, humanitarianism. In other words, caring for the poor and the needy and the ill. All of these things are things that fit together in a rightly ordered world ordered by God's word. And yet, if we are not careful, and if we do not pay attention to the Lord's desire for our single-minded attention to Him, we can easily let these things take His place. We can easily let our marriages take His place. So that our attention is on our spouse, and doing what God tells us we need to in Scripture with regard to our spouse, and what quickly happens is things get turned on their heads, and we are paying more attention to the relationship with our spouse than we are paying attention to our God who is in heaven. We can let our children take the place of God, so that what we are doing in that instance is honoring them and seeking their welfare. All of these things, magnificent, wonderful things fitting together in God's Word. But what we are doing is devoting ourselves so much to them that we are excluding God. We are worried perhaps so much about their educational future or so much about their financial future or social future or whatever else that we have left God out of the picture. First off in small ways and then in large ways. The result is still the same. Education, work. God honors work in Scripture. He tells craftsmen to work in such a way that they will be noticed by the king. A good craftsman will be noticed by the king. And so this is a part of his priorities for our lives. But the result of all these things, even church, the result of all these things is if they are not kept in proper order with God coming before everything else, is that we have fallen into idolatry. Now we recognize, it's not hard for us to recognize bad gods, is it? 
bad gods is an easy thing. They're the gods that happen way over there someplace. In Scripture, the god of Moloch is referred to. <clears throat> what the god of Moloch desired of the people was that they offer children in the fire. In other words, human sacrifice. We recognize this as a bad god. And this is a god who the people set up to be a god, right? So it's not, it's not maybe as confusing as <clears throat> those things that are good gods. <clears throat> we see in our culture today that many times abortion is compared with idolatry regarding the god of Moloch. Look at other religions. Hinduism, the Muslim faith, Buddhism, the New Age movement. It's worship of crystals, it's promotion of concepts of Buddhism such as meditation and spirit guides. Look at the cults around us. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and these other things. They are clearly idolatry because they are teaching worship for a God other than the Lord Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in Scripture. But the thing we need to realize is there is no such thing as having no God. Call yourself an atheist. Call yourself what you will. <clears throat> there is something that takes the supreme place of everyone's devotion and everyone's affection. And whenever it is not the Lord, it is a false God, a God that competes with him. Now we see in Scripture an example. It's, it's, a, it's, it's funny, and it's an excellent portrayal of God's jealousy and his power and his status as the one and only God of the universe. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines and the Israelites fought. And after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, we read, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and they set it beside Dagon. <coughs> When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen flat on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, picked him up, and set him back in his place again. Now, oh God, you get back up there. <laughs> That's the funny aspect of it. Read it and see if you don't think it's funny. They picked him up and they put him back in place and they said, you stay there. They didn't really say that. But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord. Again, only this time, his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, Aha! The ark of the God of Israel must not stay with us, because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. <clears throat> there are always some people who think, as these people thought, the Philistines thought, either they thought they would add to their God Dagon, this God of the Israelites, or they thought that they would demonstrate by the ark being there that their God was more powerful than the Lord God. But there are always some people who think that they can put two gods together. And that is part of the joining the good gods together with worship of the Lord. 
<clears throat> in other words, you can have the ark of the Lord in the temple of your heart and the ark or the God of something else or someone else. For some, this other God is money. And the Lord spoke definitively about this plan when he said in Matthew chapter 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You will notice that the beginning of these verses say it clearly. This passage is not about money. Money is the subject. One small part in the whole thing. But his comments were not condemning those who tried to just serve money and also the Lord. He spoke about all plans which include two masters. No one can serve two masters. We cannot divide our loyalties with the Lord and regard it as being obedient to this command. Divided allegiance is as dangerous as anything else. And we see this illustrated in the life of Solomon in 1 Kings 11. The Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God as the heart of his father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And if we have any question as to the result of a divided allegiance, we see it taken care of in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, where God speaks of what he is going to do to the Israelites, saying those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Moloch. This is, I believe, the danger of our culture and our community, an area which is called the Bible Belt, an area in which it is proper and fitting, regarded as proper and fitting, to call an individual a good Christian man or woman, just as long as, as far as we know, they haven't done anything morally egregious or unbearable. As long as they go to church or appear to, and as long as they are decent people. We are willing to assume the best of people, regardless of the facts of their faith, regardless of our depth of knowledge concerning their faith. Divided loyalty is as dangerous as any other form of idolatry. How does God regard those who ignore him and who, whether it's by embracing bad gods, good gods, or dividing their attention, dividing their time? He says this. He regards it much more seriously if they're dividing their attention. Because the principle of Scripture is this. Those who know better have a stricter judgment. Luke chapter 12, verse 47. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And so if divided loyalty, devotion to good gods, because we know that God wants us to do these things and be devoted and honor these things. If that is our problem as a people, then we will fall under a stricter judgment because we know better. By dividing our loyalty, we are saying in essence, yes, I know that the Lord is God, but to me, at this point in time, this is more important 
than devoting my heart and my way to him. What does he call it? He calls it adulterous behavior because it's breaking a vow of commitment. He calls it adultery again and again and again throughout Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? What faithless means is someone who has broken a commitment. She has gone up on every hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her, her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. What is the result? It's punishable by divorce. Divorce in biblical terms, when God is speaking of it and speaking of divorcing his people, is this. One party suing the other because the other party has been unfaithful to their vow of commitment. Jeremiah chapter 3, continuing with verse 8. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her, her adulteries. <clears throat> and the final result is separation from God is serious judgment. There is harshness in the discipline that results from unfaithfulness to a relationship with God, resulting from divided loyalties. But the purpose of that is to bring about a return in the cycle. Restoration and reconciliation. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12, continuing from this passage. Go proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spring tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Skipping to verse 21. A cry is heard on the barren heights. What is the result of this discipline and this punishment upon the people? This is the result in verse 21. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and the pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, the people say, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our fathers' labors, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our fathers. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. A schoolmaster teaching us to repent of our sins. That is what God was doing with the people of Israel. Saying, you have disobeyed, you have been idolatrous, you have followed other gods. <clears throat> and as a result, the plan was accomplished in the lives of these people. They returned to the Lord with weeping and said, Forgive us, Lord, because we have placed other gods in the place of you. They have consumed every aspect of our lives. They have taken our possessions. They have ch taken our children. We have sacrificed everything to them instead of offering it to you who are the true and only God. So as we look at this, we need to respond in two ways. 
respond with repentance, examining our lives for any idolatry, to remove it from our lives, and respond as well to learn what God would have us learn about single-minded devotion to him. How is he dealing with you today? That is the question you and I need to ask. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word, <clears throat> that you would forgive us for, idol- for our idolatries. In many ways, Lord, we have regarded these things as good things. Some of them, Lord, have been evil at first glance and at second glance. But Lord, as we look at the things that have come into our lives that have caused us to turn our attention away from you, we realize that good or bad, they are all evil because they have caused us not to be devoted with our hearts, our souls, our strength, and our mind to you. Teach us a single-minded devotion that our lives might reap your fullest blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.